Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, a couple weeks ago, Two True Freaks did their Comics Monthly Monday episode for this month, and one one of the things that they talked about was their top five, the Freaky Five. I, honestly, I don't remember what it's called, but it's one of the two. And the subject that time out was top five comics that you're going to read. You know, the top five runs of comics that are on the bucket list. You're going to read these things before you die. And there were a lot of, I think, really interesting choices that were that, that were on their list. Which is to say, Scott Gardner's, Chris Honeywell's, and Michael Bailey's lists. And so, I don't know, call it a, just a, an alarming lack of originality on my part, but now that they've released their top five bucket list comics, I'm going to go ahead and talk about my top five. In no particular order, the first one up is Carl Barks's uh, Scrooge McDuck comics. And the reason for that is because, number one, just Disney comics in general are kind of a blind spot for me. That's never really been my thing. But number two, I've heard so frickin' many good things about Carl Barks' uh, Disney comics that I just feel like I need to read those comics for historical posterity, if nothing else. It's, it just feels like this is one of those things that it's been a priority of mine for the past several years, and I would like at some point... Hell if I know when, but at some point to read them. So that's what I'm going to do. Similar things could be said about number four. Roger Stern's entire run on Spider-Man. Now, I feel like I've kind of hit some of the high points of his run on Spider-Man, but I've never read all of it beginning to end as a reading project. Never happened. And that's something that I feel like I need to remedy. And so I'm going to, at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, I am going to tackle that. Number three, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And this is more for, I feel like, because I, 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 I don't want to go so far as to say that I'm calling everybody's bluff on this, but this is one of those uh, comics that, for whatever reason, has attained this nigh-legendary status, and I I feel about this in some ways the, the same way that I do about the time that I finally just sat down and watched Citizen Kane, you know? It's like, okay, greatest movie ever. Show me what you got. Same thing with Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. You know, so many people have said so many good things about it. I just want to put it to the test, so we'll see how that turns out. Next, number two, is Kurt Busiek's Avengers. Or wait, did I, am I going in reverse order here? Or I, I can already, can I, well, whatever. Yeah, either it's number two or it's number four. Fuck, wh whatever order I was going in, there you go. Kurt Busiek's Avengers. Now, a lot of people say that he retreads a lot of stuff that's come before. And whatever, I don't have 
so much familiarity with the Avengers in comics that I feel like I have the right to really be offended by that. So even if it is a little bit derivative, I'm willing to roll with it. But the other thing is, it's an interesting criticism anyway, considering how repetitive comics tend to be, at least in, uh, on some level or another. I don't see how, bearing in mind, I don't know what Kurt Busiek was supposedly ripping off that came before, so I'm really speaking from ignorance there, but unless it's just identical story beats or identical lines of dialogue or just whatever else, I don't see where this is any kind of major creative offense. Make sense? So, anyway. Finally, Secret Six. I have never actually read the entire run of Secret Six beginning to end. There's really no malice behind that. I've always been very fond of the Secret Six concept. It's just that for whatever reason, I've never gotten quite so far as the Secret Six. Just, you know, beginning to end, making a reading project of it. And that's something that I feel like I need to do because it it feels like it, it ties in so much with a lot of other DC Comics uh, characters and properties and franchises that it's what little I have read of it tells me that at the time that those comics were coming out, I don't know as I want to say quite that they were the best DC comics that nobody was reading, but they were really damn good. And uh, now, bearing in mind, that only really accounts for like the first five or six issues of it, after which my attention sort of drifted away, you know, to other things as it's want to do, and so never actually read too much beyond that, never mind the entire run of Secret Six. And so one of these days, again, hell if I know when, but one of these days I'm going to sit down and read Secret Six beginning to end. And so there you go. There's basically my top five comics that they're on the bucket list. I don't know when. But hopefully between now and the day I die, just whenever that is, I'll have finally gotten all of these comics knocked out, read, and everything else. I mean, I seriously doubt that this is going to be, you know, a life-changing run of comics. But these are, I think, important enough in their, in their own way. Each of these comics are important enough to be able to say with credibility, yeah, I read those. And so... Anyway, so I guess apart from curiosity, apart from historical po- uh, posterity, or or just whatever else, something just, you know, putting the hype to the test, these are just comics that I want to read, and someday I'm going to. So that's pretty much that. So otherwise, I think that's pretty much it for this little introduction. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love comics, movies, and TV shows so much that I started the best geek-oriented podcast anywhere on the internet just so I could talk about them. Now, the way things stand right now, 2015 is going to mostly be filled up with me doing a bunch of different six-episode miniseries, so for right now... My plan is just to kind of enjoy the moment and talk about shitloads of comics that interest me. And right now, I'm on a little bit of a Batman kick. And if that wasn't obvious yet, I'm thinking it will be pretty soon. It was a pretty long time ago now when my Batman fandom was at a, a little bit of a crossroads, I guess you could say, you know? Time was, you could dig on Batman without having to be a complete douche nozzle about it. And I'd like to reclaim some of that here and now and just enjoy Batman comics that I loved when I was a kid. But enjoy them on my terms. Nobody else's. Apart from that stuff, for a long time there... Most Batman fans fell into one of two categories. There were fans out there who preferred Dick Grayson as Robin and would probably never accept anybody else. And there were others who thought, well, basically who thought that the sun rose and set on Tim Drake. I'm sure you'd get oddballs here and there who think Batman worked best as a loner, and I think there were even two or three people who loved Jason Todd as Robin specifically because he smack-talked Batman and gave not a single fuck about it, but those were the oddities in the group. Most people either argued in favor of Dick Grayson or for Tim. Now, me? I was a Tim Drake fanboy any day of the week and twice on Sunday. He was becoming Robin right as I was getting into comics, and I just kind of gravitated to him and his story. It helped that Tim was a likable kid who wasn't written to be a a duplicate of Dick Grayson, or, for that matter, kind of serve as a sort of bizarro Grayson. Tim was his own person, his own character, and that, I think, is what readers really responded to. Of course, the entire debate's kind of pointless these days, thanks to Grant Morrison, but I'll spare you that. Point is, I was incredibly invested in Tim Drake's efforts to become Robin. And that's where I want to start talking about these comics. So, that's as good a place as any to talk about Detective Comics number 618, Rite of Passage Part 1, entitled Shadow on the Sun. In the Batcave, Tim Drake and Batman are on the hunt for a computer hacker who's siphoning money away from banks digitally. Eventually, Alfred appears with the mail, which includes a postcard from Tim's parents. He's a little disappointed to know that they're extending their trip into the tropics. Elsewhere, a Haitian man prays to voodoo idols for strength, but is enraged when he realizes that his son has been filming his prayers. His son's curious about the contents of a closet, which he's been told never to open. His father restates that warning before leaving his son alone in their home. On a plane over the Caribbean, 
Jack and Janet Drake are not speaking to one another, and they're using their personal secretary as a, li as a liaison for arguing with one another. They decide not to land on Haiti as they pass over it. The pilot, however, receives a call on his earpiece ordering him to land the plane in Haiti. When the voice claims to be someone called the Obam Man, the pilot is terrified and so complies, landing the plane in Haiti. By the time the Drakes realize something's wrong, they've already landed and are being surrounded by a small army of Haitians. They shoot the pilot and then drag the Drakes and their secretary to a hut in the middle of the forest. There, they're welcomed by a figure calling himself the Obam Man. Back in Gotham City, Batman takes out some thugs, but finding no connection to the internet thief, he returns to the cave. Tim's there planning to watch some TV, but a news report reveals that his parents and their plane have disappeared. Tim's shocked and fears for the lives of his parents. He retreats to his room and Alfred uh, counsels Bruce not to follow, reminding him that it's difficult to console somebody who's lost a parent, as Bruce himself should remember. Instead, Batman busies himself by tracing the actions of the internet thief as he attempts to siphon funds from Wayne Enterprises. Unfortunately, the hacker manages to override Bruce's own programs and escapes with a shitload of money. Meanwhile, Tim sits in his room, wondering how he should feel about everything that's happened. Rite of Passage Part 2, entitled Beyond Belief. Kidnapped on the island of Haiti, Jack and Janet Drake are horrified as the Obama man kills their assistant Jeremy on film. He gives the tape to one of his followers named Louis Dang to deliver to, the, uh, to, deliver to Gotham City. In the Batcave... Batman checks on the status of the search for the Drakes. The search is resuming after, they, after having been called off for the night. Batman volunteers to bring Tim Drake his dinner. He tries to be reassuring and comforting and even offers to take the day off, but Tim plans to get back to work tracking down that computer hacker called the Money Spider, the one who's stealing, all, uh, stealing everybody's money, rather than mope around and worry about things that he has no control over. And secretly... Tim doubts whether Batman uh, doubts it when Batman brings or promises to bring his parents back alive. At the home of Louis Dang, which maybe I'm I, I should be pronounces as pronouncing as Louis Dangy. <clears throat> at the home of Louis Dangy, his son Pierre has a nightmare about a monster, the Baca, escaping from a closet that he's forbidden to open. When he tells his father about his dream, he's told to mind his own business until he's a man. Back in Gotham City, Batman takes out several thugs before stopping at Gotham City Police Headquarters to meet with Commissioner Gordon. The commissioner shows the tape of, uh, that the Obam man made and warns that it's not pretty. After viewing the tape of Jeremy's murder, Batman notices a faint odor of Jimson weed on it and keeps the tape for testing. Gordon notes that uh, that uh, the Drake's uh, company has a policy to never pay ransoms. While heading out the window, Batman warns Gordon that the Obam man isn't joking around. Later, Batman deduces that the Jimson weed is used in an aromatic smoking mixture for asthma relief, the same mixture that Louis Dangy is smoking in his home when he discovers his son exploring the cupboard that he's been forbidden to open. He catches Pierre and his friend, warning them that he'll beat them if, he, if they go near it again. The children run off, 
wondering if the Baca monster is real. In the Batcave, Tim becomes frustrated with the complete lack of news about the Drake's murder or kidnapping and goes to bed at Alfred's request. Unbeknownst to Tim, though, Batman's returned with the bad news that the Drakes were, in fact, kidnapped. He warns Alfred not to mention it to Tim. He enhances the background of the tape to discover that there's a jar containing a giant centipede on the shelf. From this, he deduces that the Drakes are being held captive in, in Haiti. Unfortunately, Tim discovers the tape and realizes that his parents are alive. At first, he's angry, but eventually he calms down and Batman explains his theory that Tim, Drake, uh, Tim Drake's parents are being, held in, uh, are being held captive by a Haitian voodoo cult. Suddenly, Batman gets a call indicating that the Drake's company has received the ransom call, and so he leaves. As Batman leaves, Tim realizes that both of the previous Robins lost their parents and then starts wondering if it's a prerequisite to becoming Batman's partner. Alfred promises him that it isn't. Rite of Passage Part 3, entitled Make Me a Hero. Batman watches from the rooftops as Commissioner Gordon and the Gotham City Police Department battle a biker gang to, uh, to collect uh, the ransom for Tim Drake's kidnapped parents. Ultimately, as Batman predicts, they fail to stop the gang from escaping with the money. Batman follows the biker to a drop point where a man in a white limo poisons and kills the biker and then takes the money. Batman traces the limo, hoping he's guessed its destination correctly. In Haiti, the Obama man per, uh, performs a voodoo ritual outside the cabin where Jack and Janet Drake are being held captive. The Drakes realize that they've got little hope of surviving whatever their cap uh, captors have planned, especially if the ransom doesn't get paid. Back in Gotham City, Tim sits in his room at Wayne Manor meditating. He attempts to overcome his fears and worries, remembering the lessons Batman uh, taught him. He resolves to go back to work as a hero, hoping to capture the money spider hacker, the one who's been siphoning money from corporations before he can strike again. Alfred's relieved at Tim's perseverance, but worries about Batman. At the home of Louis Dengue, he happily tells his son Pierre that they're going to become rich because of his dealings with the Obama man and the Baca monster he hides in his cupboard. Pierre's still obsessed with the monster, though, and is skeptical about his father's beliefs. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne arrives in Haiti, having followed the man in the white limo from Gotham City. Tim manages to find the hacker's phone number back in Gotham City and travels to Gotham's juvenile detention hall where he hopes to find the culprit. He eventually discovers that the money spider is actually Lonnie Mackin, also known as Anarchy, who's commandeered the facility's phone line to commit his crimes. However, Lonnie re uh, reveals that he's redistributed the funds to third world countries. Still, he escapes and Tim gives chase using the skills he learned from Batman. He ultimately defeats Lonnie and returns him to the detention hall. Tim returns to the Batcave, proud of himself for having solved the case all by himself, when suddenly, a seriously injured Batman shows up and warns Tim that he's got some very bad news. Rite of Passage, Part 4, entitled Trial by Fire. At Gotham General Hospital, Tim asks Batman what happened to his family in Haiti, despite knowing that it's going to hurt like hell to hear Bruce talk about it. Bruce explains that he trailed the man who collected the ransom for Tim's parents to Haiti from Gotham City. The man, named Malchian, had gone to the home of Louis Dengue, a devout follower of Haitian voodoo. 
They planned to bring the ransom money to their leader, the Obam Man. While Louis Dengi made one last prayer to his idol, Batman sneaked into the back of Malchin's jeep. Meanwhile, the kidnapped Jack and Janet Drake were tied to a post surrounded by hot coals. The heat was unbearable, and the Obam Man refused to give them water. Soon, Louis Dengi and Malchin arrived with, uh, with the money, Thinking that their ransom was paid, the Drakes asked to be freed, but their captor revealed that he'd always planned to kill them regardless of whether their company paid up. As they began their sacrificial ritual, the Oban Man prompted his followers to walk across the coals and join him. Batman used the Leidenfrost effect to protect himself from the coals while he beat the piss out of the armed thugs. During his fight with the Oban Man, he, he was slashed across the chest with a knife. Using that same knife, Batman freed the Drakes. Meanwhile, Louis Dengi attempted to kill Batman by throwing uh, his own knife, but ended up getting hit in the shoulder by a flying hatchet, which knocked him into the coals where he burned to death. Janet Drake drank the water that was left on a nearby table, and as Jack Drake reached for the same water, Batman knocked it out of his hands. Janet had been poisoned by the water because the Oban Man put a shitload of poison in there. The Oban Man laughed, claiming that they were fated to die. Batman became enraged and brutally beat the remaining thugs before taking the Drakes to the nearest hospital. Bruce asks a nearby doctor whether Jack Drake will be alright, but the doctor says that there's been significant nerve damage. Jack Drake will be paralyzed if he survives at all. Tim's mother, meanwhile, has already died. Bruce turns to Tim, saying that he knows what that feels like. In his grief and frustration, Tim challenges Bruce about that before remembering that Bruce knows better than most people what it's like to lose family, especially at a young age. Bruce and Tim embrace each other, and Tim catches a glimpse of the darkness that hides within his mentor. Back in Haiti, Louis Dengue's son, uh, Pierre, reveals to his friend that he finally looked inside the cupboard that his father had always forbidden him to open. Expecting to find a monster, he was surprised to find a ball of mud, feather, and bones. Pierre didn't understand the true nature of his father's beliefs, though, because he threw the idol into the furnace. Pierre doesn't realize that his actions indirectly caused his father's death in flames. By voodoo. So, what did I think? Look, I gotta tell you, I devoured this story when it was coming out. You see, Detective Comics number 618, the first part of uh, Rite of Passage, this was the first comic book I ever bought with the intention of collecting comics. In fact, you could draw kind of a, par uh, kind of a parallel between Tim's quest to become Robin and my quest to build up a comic book collection. Tim was growing and learning as he went along, and you know what? I was too. Different subjects, sure, but he and I were both on our way to something bigger than we'd ever known before. Now, before we get too much further into this, you might ask why I didn't start this whole thing off with a lonely place of dying as opposed to rite of passage. And... Honestly, the short answer to that is, I had to start somewhere. And Rite of Passage is as good as anything. But 
the longer answer is that if I talked about A Lonely Place of Dying, I pretty much have to talk about Batman Year 3. And if I talk about Batman Year 3, there's kind of an obligation to talk about A Death in the Family. I mean, look, this could go on and on and on. Plus, when all said and done, I wanted Tim Drake to be my reference point here, and you kind of lose that when you talk about all those other stories. Anyway, one thing I've always loved about this storyline is how it showed me that comics don't have to tell a completely linear story. And here's the thing. Most of the comics that I'd read up to this point, they had fairly straightforward A to B to C to D type of plots. I hadn't really read very many stories like Rite of Passage before. But there comes a point in this storyline where Batman and Tim each have their own stories to work through, and I loved that. I mean, Tim has... He's got to uh, kill time by tracking down the money the money spider. He's, he's got a lot of things going on in his mind, and so what he does is he busies himself with work to keep his mind off of what might be happening to his parents. Meanwhile, Batman's mostly occupied with rescuing uh, the Drakes before something really horrible happens. And he's not completely successful with that either. As good as Batman is, the, this entire story is built on the proposition that Batman's only human, and he's got his share of limitations. Now, if this story came out today, Batman would probably have rescued everybody without breaking a sweat, flown back to Gotham City, beat up Darkseid on the way there, cured cancer, uh, just for shits and grins, and then been home just in time for dinner. That doesn't happen here. Batman ultimately saves the day, but his victory is incomplete, and he gets pretty chewed up in the process. This is a Batman who's fallible and limited. His timing isn't always perfect, and he doesn't always save the day. And I guess my point, the reason I'm kind of beating this to death is because i got to tell you, dude, reading this story, it was such a breath of fresh air, you know? And then there's Tim. How can you not sympathize with Tim in all this? He's worried out of his mind about his parents, but he's determined to do something productive with his time, and so what he decides to do is track down the money spider. Now... Aside from showing Tim's talents with computers, and guys, that was a rare thing for fictional characters when these comics were first coming out. But aside from showing you know, that Tim knows what he's doing with computers, it also showed that Tim was capable of putting his emotions, in, uh, emotions aside in order to get the job done. When all said and done, there really aren't any clear winners in this story. Tim lost his mother, Batman was too slow to rescue everybody in one piece, the Obam man got screwed out of his human sacrifice, and even Pierre is unintentionally orphaned because, you know, he burned his father's uh, voodoo idol. There are no real winners here. And I, and, I, and I have to say, some of the best Batman stories out there are a hollow victory, and this one's no exception. Anyway. Then you start getting into Norm Brayfogle's art. Now look, what you need to understand is that this was my first glimpse of his work. But as I've said before, Norm Brayfogle's Batman is 
Batman to me. For my money, Bray Fogel's definitive insofar as Batman artists go. And yes, 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 I realize that there's an entire legion of people out there that are losing their mind because my Batman artist is Norm Bray uh, Fogel rather than fucking uh, Marshall Rogers, Neil Adams, Jim Aparo, or any of the usual suspects. But guys, this was what I was introduced to. But the other thing is that sometimes an artist comes along who just gets a character and almost instinctively knows what to do and when to do it. I've said before that Bray Fogel developed his line style more and more as he continued his run on the character, but he, at the same time, he didn't really go through the same type of learning curve that most uh, most other artists do when they first get started in comics because he was already a very accomplished uh, draftsman before he ever got the Detective Comics gig. Still, he tweaked his line style big time uh, by the time of uh, Riot of Passage, and he was already good, but if you ask me, Riot of Passage is where Bray Fogel showed that he was starting to become a master. Anyway. So... Next up, this is a storyline entitled Identity Crisis from Batman number 455 to 457. Part 1, Identity Crisis Part 1, begins... um, It's almost dawn in Gotham City when Batman responds to gunshots. He encounters a masked gunman who shoots four people, killing two of them. Batman disarms the gunman and slams into him. Pulling off the mask, he finds a 67-year-old woman who later explains that her actions were just a whim. She just felt like doing it. Meanwhile, reporter Vicki Vale finds and photographs some homeless people. As she leaves, another criminal, wearing an identical mask to the gun-toting old woman, arrives and hacks the homeless men into pieces with an axe. Meanwhile, Tim Drake has a dream where he's uh, he's tormented over his mother's death by images of Batman and Nightwing. In the dream, Tim seems freaked out by the, by the hero's masks. Batman wakes him up and, fi- and reminds him that today is his mother's funeral. Meanwhile, Vicky develops her photographs and discovers that she has an image of the masked criminal who attacked the homeless men after she, after she left. Meanwhile, Bruce and Alfred watch a news report of yet another man dressed in yet another mask, the same mask, killing eight people in a store before being shot to death by policemen. He's identified as a man named Joseph Mackey. Meanwhile, Tim's in the Batcave looking at Jason Todd's Robin costume, and he's beginning to understand the desire to wear a mask and take revenge. Bruce advises Tim to accept his anger instead of fighting it. After that, they leave for the funeral. As all that's going on, Vicky watches a news report of the homeless men who were attacked. After killing three of the homeless men, the killer was pushed by the other homeless people into their uh, into their fire. He's identified as a uh, as a random bus driver. Vicky inspects her photos, thinking that she may have evidence that the police can use. She she enlarges a, a, a picture, which includes an image of a car leaving the scene, so that she can get the license plate number on the car. Meanwhile, at the funeral, Dick. Grayson offers Tim his help and speaks with Bruce, who tells him, 
that Tim wants to wear the Robin costume, but Bruce doesn't want that for him just yet. Meanwhile, Vicky takes the photo of the license plate to the police. Lieutenant Kitch tells her that they already had the number and they've traced it to a guy by the name of Rocco Mar- or sorry, Rico Marcuse, who said he was driving by on his way to work. They could find no connection between him and the axe killer. Vicky's not convinced and decides to track down Rico herself. Meanwhile, after Tim searches unsuccessfully on the computer all afternoon, trying to find some kind of link between the various murders, Bruce decides to hit the streets, and then he denies Tim's request to join him. Batman tells Tim that he doesn't think he's ready for the responsibility that comes with the mask. Tim lashes out at him, saying that he doesn't understand what Batman's malfunction is, but Batman tells him that when he does understand, he just might be ready to finally join him. Either way, though, Batman orders Tim to stay put, stay home, or he'll never get the chance to be Robin. Batman's not fucking around, either. If Tim disobeys his order, his orders, that's it. Show's over. He's not going to become Robin. End of story. Meanwhile, as all of that's going on, Vicky tracks Rico to his workplace and finds his car. As she tries to figure out what her next uh, course of action should be, she's confronted by a sledgehammer-wielding masked psychopath. Batman number 456, entitled Without Fear of Consequence. Batman stops a skeleton-masked criminal, otherwise dressed as a Santa Claus, at Gracie's department store where he'd injured eight people. A reporter indicates that this is the 43rd so-called crime of whim. Afterwards, Batman talks to uh, Lieutenant Kitch, who tells him there's no trace of chemicals or hypnosis. Kitch tells Batman about Vicky's lead with uh, uh, Rico Marcuse as well, which is a pretty good segue into Vicky being attacked by a masked man called Yaz, while Rico assigns some of his men with the names and addresses of three more people who are to be sent skeleton masks. One of his henchmen spots the struggle between Yaz and Vicky, and they go down to see what the hell's going on. Rico v- recognizes uh, Vicky from the uh, from the morning from earlier that morning near the homeless men. Th- they take Vicky with them to see their boss. Meanwhile, Batman, who's been watching all of this, follows them silently. Meanwhile, back in the Batcave, Tim continues searching for a link between all of the different victims. He's driven to find the solution to prove himself to Bruce that he deserves to be Robin. Alfred tries to change the subject by enlisting Tim's help with wrapping Christmas presents, but Tim's not having any of it. He refuses to give up on his search for the killers. Rico takes Vicky to Gotham Chemical, an abandoned factory. They call the boss to tell him ab- uh, about Vicky and all of that, and then they escort her up. On the stairs, Vicky manages to get away from the, hen- uh, from the henchman, but runs straight into their boss. Meanwhile, Batman decides to try sneaking into the building. As all that's going on, Tim uh, daydreams that he's confronted by the ghosts of Dick and Jason Todd, both of whom encourage Tim to keep going. Never give up. He wakes up and then contemplates the situation a little bit before realizing that whim is really just a momentary lack of fear. And then he realizes that he has his answer. Tim calls the Batmobile, but Batman doesn't answer. So he calls Commissioner Gordon and asks him to activate the Bat signal 
to tell Batman what he's figured out. Batman's sneaking around outside of the hideout and spots the bat signal, but he doesn't have time to respond at that moment. He continues his infiltration, but accidentally sets off a booby trap, and then he gets captured by the boss, who's revealed to be the Scarecrow. Meanwhile, Tim debates whether he should disobey Batman's orders and go into action, or if he should just stay put and hope for the best. He ultimately decides that he has to break the rules in order to rescue Batman, so he grabs a taxi and heads out, knowing full well that he's never going to become Robin because of all of this. Batman, number 457, entitled Master of Fear. Scarecrow has Batman and Vicky captured and reveals his plans. He had Christmas cards and skeleton masks sent to 50 people that he chose at random. The cards were coated with one of his new hypnotoxins that removes a person's fear. After the toxin had time to take effect, Scarecrow called them and suggested they try killing people, which, because of the fact that their inhibitions had been removed, they did. While a city in fear was definitely pleasing to the Scarecrow, it was really all just an elaborate trap to bring Batman to him so that he could use various fear toxins on him and slowly unwrap Batman's mind. The ultimate Christmas present for the Scarecrow to give to himself. While beginning Batman's fear sessions, Rico Marcuse and his henchmen drive away with the bonus money that Scarecrow had given them. When Rico opens the envelope, he gets doused with Scarecrow's gas and in a fit of rage attacks the driver. The car, now out of control, crash, uh, crashes into a storage pile of toxic waste. And there they die. Tim Drake has taken a cab to the Scarecrow's hideout, meanwhile, and searches for the Batmobile to see if Batman's fallen into the trap. Tim has no trouble seeing the Batmobile and decides that he has to attempt a rescue. Tim traps two of the remaining henchmen and knocks out a third one before coming up, uh, before coming up the stairs and finding Scarecrow and Batman. Donning a ski mask to avoid being recognized, Tim orders Scarecrow to free Batman. However, he didn't survey the scene and he gets attacked by the henchman who was holding Vicky out of Tim's uh, field of vision. As Tim disables them, Scarecrow grabs the uh, latest fear gas he was using on Batman called Essence de Trauma and throws it at Vicky and Tim. While Vicky suffers visions of reliving uh, her puppy getting run over by a car, Tim's tormented by hallucinations of the Obam Man. Tim's paralyzed with fear when images of the two previous Robins appear telling him not just to fight the fear, but accept it. Live with it. They remind him that just because you're, you're feeling fear doesn't mean you can't still act. Taking their advice, Tim manages to get to his feet, and then he slams Scarecrow into the shelves holding all of his other fear toxins, which douse him and effectively disable him. Tim takes off his mask in front of Batman, who, still somewhat delirious, mistakenly calls him Robin. Tim frees Batman, then goes back to the Batmobile to avoid being seen. A bunch of police arrive after having been called by Tim's taxi driver, who was concerned about leaving a kid alone near a deserted factory. They all take the Scarecrow uh, into custody and Vicky to the hospital. Afterward, Batman finds Tim. Batman asks Tim why he didn't put on the Robin outfit to come to the rescue, and Tim explains that he was afraid of failing and disgracing the Robin symbol in the process. 
Tim adds that he realizes now that he'll never be Robin because he disobeyed his orders, but he figured out the whole thing was a trap set by Scarecrow, and he, could, he couldn't let Batman just die. Batman tells him that sometimes, when it's justified, heroes get to break the rules, and he calls him Robin. Back at the Batcave, Tim admits that he's feeling a lot of apprehension about wearing Jason Todd's suit because of the crazy amount of history that it, that it carries. Batman acknowledges the weight of the Robin symbol and the legacy, and so he presents a new, upgraded Robin suit, which Tim puts on for the very first time. Tim Drake is now Robin. So, what did I think? Well, I was obsessed. Not just interested in, obsessed with this story when it first came out. Now, look, you have to understand that when these issues started coming out, my finger was nowhere near the pulse of comic book gossip. I mean, I started reading this story when these comics were new on the shelves, and I had no clue that the story was going to end with Tim becoming Robin. In fact, in the main, Identity Crisis kind of feels like a sequel to Rite of Passage. It was, I guess on a plot level, a continuation of what came before. That's it, nothing more. And that's how I started reading this storyline, that it's just the follow-up to Rite of Passage. Where that changed, though, was at the end of Batman number 456, which is to say the second part of this story. The next issue box at the end of that comic all but promised that Tim Drake was going to become Robin for real after this story. And I couldn't have been more excited about it. Now, back in my day, comic books were available in gas stations and bookstores and other places like that. I mean, you could go somewhere other than a comic book store to pick up your stuff. And that's definitely true. But the problem is that newsstand distribution like that is a pretty uneven thing. You can get an issue of Batman, but are you going to be able to get the next issue of Batman there? And the one after that? And the one after that? Maybe. But maybe not. It's a pretty uneven thing. And guys, that wasn't a mystery to me. I knew that at the time. And so I realized that there was a very good chance that I might somehow miss Batman number 457. It was theoretically possible. And if it came down to that, I knew I'd have to pull rank on my dad and make him drive me to a comic book store so I could pick it up. And I knew he'd do it. But here's the thing. I knew he wouldn't want to do it. When you're a kid, you know that your parents are only going to put up with just so much bullshit. And after that, they'll start putting their foot down about things. Luckily, though, it never came to that. As I've said before, and maybe it was in my episode about Spider-Man 2099. I think that might have been it. But like I said in that episode, my mom would bribe me with candy and stuff so that I'd go to my brother's Little League uh, uh, baseball games. Well, 
during a trip to the convenience store to do that very thing, apart from the candy and the chips and the Dr. Pepper and all that stuff, I spied with my little eye Batman number 457 waiting on the shelf for me to snap up. And snap it up I did. Needless to say, the conclusion to the story didn't exactly play out the way that I was originally expecting. I mean, I guess I figured that Tim would put on the old Robin costume and save Batman's ass just like he did back in A Lonely Place of Dying, but that doesn't happen here. Here, Tim just wears a jacket and a ski mask as a disguise for most of the issue. And I gotta say, that bugged the hell out of me when I was a kid, especially since Tim gets a Robin costume by the end of this issue. And so the result of that is that we never, ever get to see uh, Tim Drake in the old-style Robin outfit, apart from that brief little moment in Batman number 442. As I get older, though, what I realize is that this is a character moment for both Tim and Batman. In Batman number 452, the last chapter of A Lonely Place of Dying, Batman sees Tim wearing the, the, the Robin outfit, and he angrily just snatches the domino mask right off of Tim's face, and then flat out fucking tells him he's not Robin. He even goes so far as to say that he'll never be Robin. And that's the same threat Batman makes this time around back in Batman number 456. Tim already felt like he was breaking the rules just by showing up to save, uh, save the day in the first place. There was no way Tim was prepared to risk Batman's wrath even more by wearing Jason's costume. But beyond even that... When Tim stole Jason's costume in A Lonely Place of Dying, he had no idea what that really meant to Batman. He thought he did, but he didn't. But Tim knows damn good and well what that would mean here in Identity Crisis, and he's not going to risk a symbol that's bigger than Tim is himself. Tim, basically what he's doing here is Tim showing respect for his predecessors, and also a little bit of his own fear about not being able to live up to their example. On the other hand, though, I mean, let's face it, that bar's been pret—it's been set pretty fucking low with Jason Todd. So I don't know if Tim has very much to worry about here, but whatever. None of that's the point. The point is that it was totally in character for Tim to steal Jason's costume, his Robin costume, in A Lonely Place of Dying. Tim was the ultimate Batman and Robin fanboy when he did that, and this was a dream come true for him. But he's not just a fanboy anymore in Identity Crisis. At this point in life, he's lost people that he cares about. He's gotten to know Bruce Wayne man-to-man, and he's come to understand that this isn't kids playing dress-up. Batman's on a crusade. He has a mission. And now, Tim's part of that. It's not about fantasy and kid stuff, for, not for Tim anymore. It's about committing himself to ideals and principles that are bigger than any one man. And it's also about learning when to break your teacher's rules for your own teacher's good. That is why Tim couldn't steal Jason's costume and identity crisis. He had to figure out his own way to handle this. And that works so perfectly for me now. 
and it would have been completely wrecked if Tim busted in there wearing Jason's old Robin costume. The moment would have been totally ruined because even though Tim's earned the right to wear the outfit right now, he just doesn't have the confidence for it. He has one more thing that he needs to do. He needs to do right what Jason did wrong in A Death in the Family. Jason disobeyed Batman in A Death in the Family, and he had to pay the price for it. What Tim has to learn is that there is a time and a place to do that. You just have to be smart about it. Anyway, so far, though, this is all about the ending of the story. The story itself shows random citizens going on random killing sprees. And people, I came of age in the early 90s. This wasn't fantasy stuff for kids my age. People went on random killing sprees all the time. It feels like it happened a few times a week, but honestly, there's no way it could have been that bad. But my point is that it felt real to me that people in this story would just go crackers for no apparent reason and then start killing other people. I didn't need very much imagination to believe in that. Anyway, apart from that stuff, one of the ongoing elements of this story is Tim having visions of Dick and Jason. He knows that he's got a lot to live up to there, and it weighs on him. And not necessarily in a negative way, but it's still something that he's aware of. In the first chapter, Tim dreams that he's getting scolded by Nightwing. In the second part of the story, Tim falls asleep in the Batcave and dreams that Jason and Dick, as Robin, are both there encouraging him to solve the mystery and figure out what's going on. In the third part of the story, Tim gets dosed with the Scarecrow's fear toxin. And again, he sees Jason and Dick dressed as Robin, encouraging him to fight through the fear and save the day. And he does. When all's said and done, Tim, gr Tim gets strength from Robin as a symbol. Yes, he's afraid of shaming what Robin is all about. But in the crucial moment, he'll always use Robin as his foundation. That is, unless DC totally fucks up their continuity and decides that Tim was never Robin in the first place, but <laughs> come on, what are the odds of that? Ugh. Anyway. And then there's Norm Brayfogle's art. Look, I talked at length about Norm just a little while ago. And I've even had him on my show so that I could get all fanboy with him and just I don't just tell him how much his his work has meant to me over the years, how much I love his art. So do I seriously need to justify how much I love his stuff now? So I guess on the whole, this is a Batman story that I've always had tons of affection for. Obviously, I love the hell out of this story. Like I say, when I was a kid, I saw a parallel between Tim entering Batman's world and me kind of doing the same thing by becoming a comic book collector. Now, what I'm saying here is that maybe I've got way too big an emotional investment in this story. And maybe I'm blind to flaws that these stories have you know, a rite of, rite of passage and identity crisis. Maybe I'm just blind to their flaws. But I love them. And if you've never read them before, check them out. Satisfaction guaranteed. All right? It's Alan Grant. 
and Norm Brayfogle writing stories where, among other things, Tim Drake becomes Robin. You shouldn't need any more justification than that. Anyway. So, that's about enough for me for right now. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. And thank you for calling the Tales of the Justice Society of America 24-hour live human being customer service hotline. Hello, I... Unfortunately, all uh. of our representatives are sleeping. Or busy. Uh, busy. All of our representatives are busy right now. But if you stay on the line, your call will be answered in reverse Hungarian alphabetical order, starting with the letter... D. Okay. Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line. Alright. We are experiencing longer than usual wait times. Your call will be answered in... 94. Minutes. Please continue to hold. Your call is extremely important to us. Please stay uh... on the line. Check us out on the web at www.2truefreaks.com. Your call is ridiculously important to us. Yeah, Please if my call's so important, then why don't you answer it? What the f*** is taking so long? You may be asking yourself, what the f*** is taking so long? Um, be sure we'll be with you shortly. Please continue to hold. Answer. Answer the goddamn... <laughs> Let me check, is he still there? Ah! Well, guys, he's still holding! Oh! <laughs> We're sorry for your wait. Please continue to hold. God damn it! Tales of the Justice Society of America is back with all new episodes. Only at twotruefreaks.com. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G. 
UG.com. Take a look around, and I bet you you'll find something. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! Bravo. How, how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering a podcast such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks Network, and in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. 
and reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got just a little bit of feedback to go through here. Which... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the hell you you, you measure something like that. Um, The reason for my confusion here is that I've got an email here from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. That is approximately the same length as War and Peace. So I'm going to try and make it through this thing as best I can. Um, the, ty- the title of this email, the subject of it is, is uh, It Has Come. And again, comes from uh, Fanboy Miss Prime, dated June the 21st. Now, before I get into this email, what I need to do is just kind of preface everything that you're about to hear by saying that Prime traded several emails with me about... I guess you could call it the equivalent of a, a Brave and the Bold animated series. This one, though, is intended for Superman. And that's pretty much Prime's reference point on it. Now, he thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And every single email he sent me for a while there related to some kind of new idea or new insight or something like that that he had for this hypothetical animated show because obviously at least at the time that I record this there is no animated show coming uh, this is basically something that fanboy Miss Prime dreamed up and he thought you know wouldn't it be cool if and so that's pretty much that so that's maybe a good sort of introduction to all of this Prime writes hey Magnus I gotta be honest, I really don't give a rat's butt about Matrix 2 and 3. I saw the original, and it was good enough for me. Admittedly, it got kind of old seeing a metric ton of Matrix and whatever crossovers over the years, as most of them were... Well, let's just say they were some... There were some good ones to be had. The key word being, some. Now. Now we get the big stuff. I think I finally finished my DC Presents ideas, and here it comes. This is my DC Presents cartoon idea. There's a bit of Batman, the brave and the bold, and taking some versions of characters not really seen in in animation, and using them. There's plenty of material and characters that need to be highlighted, and especially the Wildstorm stuff needs to, I, I think this means, needs to be promoted in the eye of the public. 
which is strange given Jim Lee's head of the non-comic related projects. So you'd think he'd have some DC Nation shorts on uh, made focusing on the Wildstorm material. Besides, the Wildstorm stuff there are the new characters created in the DC New. Plus, this cartoon is to be a reconstruction of DC's superheroes as deconstruction has become what DC and Marvel pretty much stuck in. Have become pretty much stuck in. I have nothing against dark or gritty stories, just that it doesn't need to be most the line at any given at any one given time. Sorry, uh, Prime, I'm just having trouble parsing some parts of this email. And editors and such, unable to keep continuity some semblance of working order, but I digress. First up is the Simon Baz Green Lantern. I mean, it seems even DC no longer cares about this guy, and Sinestro's gotten his own comic book series before him. For the cartoon, I'd say not specifically what crimes he had done, but something shady had gone down in his background, so Batman doesn't like the guy at all, and Hawkgirl wants to smash his face in. And yet, Superman's willing to give the, give the man a chance. I picked Baz because a Green Lantern with skeletons in their closet would make for a different sort of tension than Guy Gardner at his most alpha male brutish would bring to the table. Though he won't have a gun. He doesn't really... I think you mean to say here he doesn't really need one. When he has the most powerful weapon in the universe, to be honest, and this is where I'm, I just want to put this email on pause. Actually, you know what? I'll put the email on pause in a minute. I've got something I want to say to that, though. Prime writes, Plus, Hal, Guy, and John have all been the major GLs in various cartoons. Kyle also getting an up in the Superman the Animated Series, and I want Simon Baz to get some time in the spotlight. And with the mission statement of using, quote, the obscure or less used on-air versions of the team-up heroes, unquote, means he'd be the best choice. And to be like Justice League when the league is together, it isn't all just a bunch of white guys. And it isn't to be PC either. It's a case of there being a new Green Lantern, and I figure the new guy could use a boost in the public eye and could be seen to, and could be fun to see what could be done with him. Too bad DC doesn't seem to want to do that with him. I'm putting the email on pause now and saying, you know what, I completely understand why DC doesn't want to do that with him. And Honestly, this may offend some people, but, you know, whatever. I don't like Simon Baz. I, I kind of regard Simon Baz as being sort of pandering, all right? And, you know, if that bothers you, whatever, all right? If you must have ethnic diversification, any number of alien species are out there ready to be chosen. And if it has to be human diversification, there's always Jon Stewart. But it just, it seems to me like Simon Baz is basically DC saying, okay, we don't believe in terrorism. Basically, is that, that's what I take away from it. You know, and it just, it, it just seems to me like it's just fucking pandering. And on top of all of that, I don't even know that DC even likes this character very much either, since I don't know that anyone does a whole lot with him, since uh, not very long after uh, Jeff Johns wrapped up his run on Green Lantern. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that the only reason Simon Baz was ever allowed to be printed and printed on the comic book page in the first place was exactly because, you know, Jeff, he was a Jeff Johns brainchild. And so I just, anyway, I don't know. Look, if you think there's potential to that character, dude, more power to you. 
I just don't see it. You know, I mean, to me, it's basically you get the initial shock value of an Arab dude who is in a, the exact situation that, let's face it, a lot of people stereotype Arab people to be in, which is to say driving around in a van with a fucking bomb in it. And then he gets pulled over by the cops and he's saying, I know what you're thinking. You know, it just, come on, dude. Anyway, whatever. But uh, I, you know, it just kind of feels like Jeff Johns was trying for something there. And I just, I'm sorry, I don't fucking buy it. But whatever. Anyway, my point, though, is that if this seems cool to you, dude, that's great. Have at it. I just have absolutely, positively no interest in seeing Simon Baz anywhere well, I say outside of comics. No, I don't even give a shit about seeing him in comics, but I certainly don't want to see him outside of comics. So, anyway. To go back to Prime's email, though, he writes, On to Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Oh, yes. The Hawks would be involved as well. Hawkgirl slash Hawkwoman. Going with an unlikely source is going with the post-Nth Metal is Gone version. Basically, she'd be first seen in Central City or Keystone City or even Gotham as the loose cannon cop that doesn't want to play by the rules. And that's before they show her as a wingman and she really starts kicking ass and taking names. For Hawkman, he'd go by his DC new origin of ending up on Earth and landing during or in the aftermath of a major ecological disaster and his name changed in gaining computer records from Katar Hole to Carter Hall. One thing, definitely, that would happen is a shadow war between the Thanagarians and the Daemonites. Something that would involve Superman, the Hawks, and Grifter. Grifter being told he's some chosen one, quote-unquote, to defeat the Daemonites, and he's not sure what everyone in, this, in the group he's with is smoking, but it's better uh, to have someone watch his back as the Daemonites seem to hate his guts already. Grifter is also someone Batman and Hawkgirl don't much care for. Given their backgrounds of being tied somewhat to the law of, or being a cop, and he's a con man, they aren't going to like that guy. Especially given that trouble follows him like it's a hungry dog and he's got dog treats in his back pocket. Grifter, of course, really doesn't care what the opinions other, uh, others have of him. But is very confused Superman's willing to give him a chance. Grifter would use the telekinetic powers he had in Liefeld and Thierry's run on his book and use those instead of firearms. As for the Bat himself, he would have had one Robin or just two at the most. Batman most definitely would not be the Frank Miller one. Not sure if he'd be any one version of the character, but he'd probably be closest to the Bronze Age version, and maybe some of the Scott Snyder version, that wasn't this unstoppable force and a man who could be blindsided and people could get the drop on. And also play up the detective angle, as in he's not a dumbass that can be led along like the Nolanverse Batman has been. He and Superman are definitely friends, but they'd have very different views on some things. Note, some things. Not all things, and definitely not on wanting to kick supervillain butt and help people. And I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, there's a version of Batman that has almost never been seen outside of comics. I say almost because he was in the Justice League New Frontier series, but that was basically it. And I speak of 
the golden age Batman, and I mean the early, 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 early golden age Batman, where he was this sort of um, he. Re- you, you hear those vintage interviews with Bob Kane where he says that he wanted Batman to be this sort of grim and morose, mysterious sort of vigilante type, and that's pretty much what Batman was during. I don't know, Detective Comics number 27 to number 37. Basically, that era right before Robin showed up, that's what Batman was. And, you know, that version of Batman has always worked for me. Yeah, he carries a gun. Yeah, there's a a um, a, 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 a machine gun mounted on top of the uh, bat gyro. But, honestly, this is a guy that he, he knows who he is, he knows what he's out to do, and he sets out to do it. And that version of the character has always been, I don't know about my favorite, but he's always been one of, he's always, that's always been a version of the character that I've wanted to see outside of the comics. So, anyway. Getting back into Prime's email, though, he writes, Robin would be the least used boy wonder of them all, Jason Todd. I'd go with more or less his DC new Robin costume and his original hair color of red. He'd also team up with Kid Devil, and the pair would have an adventure with Superman. The Man of Steel trying to do something fun but not risky, and ending up facing, uh, facing off against Felix Faust and Abracadabra, or even Anton Arcane and his twisted minions. Also, for Jason Todd, he'd learn that the woman that raised him possibly wasn't his biological mother. He goes searching for her, and Lady Shiva, under her real name, did give birth to a child about Jason's age, going by hospital records. Jason manages to find her, and yes, there would be a reference to Cassandra Cain in the cartoon. Though Lady Shiva, like in the comics, does find it funny Robin thinks she could be his mother. On that road trip, Jason Todd meets the speedster Middle Eastern hero, uh, Siraku and defends his usual fate, or rather, avoids his usual fate. Not sure how injured Robin could be with it, considering that it's a kid's show and all, but probably can have him bandaged up after his encounter with the Joker. After that, Superman and Batman try to find the child of Lady Shiva, and eventually do find Cassandra King. Batman taking in the girl, and she becomes the second Batgirl. As for what Barbara Gordon's doing, well... She's a congresswoman for whatever state Gotham's in, in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. Not sure exactly how much she'll be interacting with the other heroes, but it does put her in a very different position than anyone would expect, to which I say I kind of agree with that. For the Marvel family, which I'd go with the out-of-time element not used well in the Bronze Age, they'd be the Golden Age heroes thrown into the modern world. Yeah, it is what happened to Captain America, but it has legs, and give them something that uh, helps them stand out from Superman. One thing from the modern DC new uh, take that I'd have is that, yes, they can say Shazam, or Captain Marvel, in Captain Marvel Jr.'s case, and not transform unless they mean to. Captain Marvel would adopt the cape with a hood of the current version at least once to try it out, and Captain Marvel Jr. would try all kinds of different names to try to be more hip, with a bit of humor to it. The Martian Manhunter I play with is his current version a bit. He's very foreboding and a bit creepy. Superman isn't even sure if Jean has messed up, uh, has messed with his mind or not. 
Yet that would turn out to be more of a mask the Martian Manhunter wears when he's in the field and dealing with the bad guys. He's much more his serious yet dry sense of humor personality from JLA when he's with the other heroes. Though they sometimes aren't sure who is the Jean, the harsh warrior they know on the battlefield, or the wise man who enjoys Oreos or Chacos to avoid copyright and such issues. Power Girl and Huntress, I'd go with the current versions more or less, as let's be honest, on Power Girl's er origins being utterly a mess, post-crisis to infinite crisis. For a cartoon, I'd want to go with something I can explain at least in a paragraph, if not a sentence. It'd also be with Karen's full-body DC new outfit, as I do think it was alright, and to avoid dealing with the censors over her boob window costume. Now, Superman and the others would uh, definitely help Power Girl in her, in her quest to return to her, uh, to her home dimension. In this universe, Karen won't need to sleep with Mr. Terrific and steal things from him, as she, along with Huntress, would team up with Superman and Batman from time to time to feel him out and see if they're as trustworthy as the versions they knew. The Justice Society of America would come out of hiding and, and the woodwork to help, in Power Girl and, to help Power Girl and Huntress along with the Trinity. Oh yes, definitely going, uh, going with after the Senate Committee in the, in the 50s, the JSAers went into hiding and tried to raise families or keep the superheroics hidden from the public eye. The JSAers that for whatever reasons, some of them have stopped or very slowed down aging. Such as the Starheart for Alan Scott, Speed Force for Jay Garrick, Wildcat having nine lives, and of course the explosion of Ian Carcole. Though Captain Marvel, this was never checked as he was a JSAer, yet had the whole gang going into a suspendium thing. They go public now as they have this feeling it is the right time to return. So the JSA, Trinity, Power Girl, and Huntress go to Earth 2 and encounter. Young and new versions of heroes with some familiar code names and some familiar real names and code names for many of them. Plus, this is where the DC new Shazam is. Basically, I'm letting the classic versions of the characters and the DC new versions of the characters both exist in the DC multiverse. And oh boy, finding out the new Batman of Earth 2 is a, uh, is a survived his supposed death and ran away Thomas Wayne does not sit well with the Earth-1 Batman, and that new Batman's granddaughter, Huntress, at all. If anything, they're as disgusted with him as the now-deceased original Earth-2 Batman who disowned his father when he found Thomas Wayne was still alive. Thomas Wayne is using Miraclose so he can fight like a man in their prime, even, or if not even more physically powerful because of that uh, drug. Though that stuff won't be able to armor his heart to his granddaughter being barely able to stand being in the same room with him. Their desire for brevity is why I'd go with the Teen Titans being the Dan Jurgens take as being able to use a single origin for most of the team. Plus, I enjoyed that era. Though unlike DC editorial, I'd go with the original plan for the team and have Nightwing or Raven or Cyborg or whoever working together as the mentors and ties to the Teen Titans name as the Marv Wolfman, George Perez version of the team had existed in the five years. Plus, Supergirl, Solstice, and Static being part of the team as well. For Supergirl, definitely go with her being extremely headstrong and pissed off like the DC new version is. At least as a starting point for how she is. 
The first meeting between the Man of Steel and the Maid of Might being a massive brawl. However, it would be lampshaded a bit by Superman lamenting they never want to talk. Though, he does manage to get through to her eventually. Kara also meeting her cousin's friends, a.k.a. Batman and Wonder Woman. Kara's not happy to end up hanging out with the Teen Titans, especially with it being the Teen Titans or going to Paradise Island, or to encounter her bustier counterpart, Power Girl, whom Superman isn't forcing uh, to hang out on some team with people she doesn't want to be around. Kara's life, Kara's life has been twisted and warped beyond belief, and she's not sure what to make of the, make of the Earth and all the craziness of being a superhero. She's just not as into it as Superman at first. Kara's first story arc for DC Presents is to grow from angry and resentful and into making peace with her life, has, uh, w with the fact that her life has changed and that she can help people. For Kara's costume, she'd have more or less the DC uh, new costume that she has, with possibly a skirt added to it. Changing Supergirl's look is a lot less of a problem than it is for Superman or the next subject for this cartoon. For Wonder Woman, the thing I have uh, most for is the question of if Artemis counts as Wonder Woman in any legal uh, stuff, as that would be a backdoor around any legal crap if I needed someone to fill the bracelets in Tiara. This isn't a, a slide against the character, and is more the fact that she's had a lot of legal crap get in the way of her showing up in some, in some shows. Another thing would be for her to go out on a date with Superman, and it drags the Man of Steel into fighting Greek myth. And, of course, Clark suggesting they just be friends after a wild adventure. Though, if any version of, Hawk, uh, or sorry, of uh, Wonder Woman isn't available to, due to any legal entanglement, she'd be replaced on the Justice League by Zatanna, or Hawkgirl slash Hawkwoman. Or possibly Zealot being used, but definitely not as a member of the Justice League. Aquaman, I'd probably go more or less with the current version. We got the bearded, badass Peter David Aquaman in the DCAU, and we got the fun-loving Aquaman and Batman, the Brave and the Bold. I doubt I could top those, so it'd be best to try a different take on the Marine Marvel. Yes, that is one of Aquaman's more obscure and out-of-use monikers. A bit surprising, it is so left in obscurity as it, does, as it does roll right off the tongue. Though, I must admit I consider the Kurt Busiek-created Aquaman to be my Aquaman. Not sure if the younger and more loner Joseph Curry as he dropped the Arthur part of his name, would be a good fit or not. Something to consider as I would have, as I would have that be the only other version of Aquaman that I'd be interested in using in the show. Leaning mostly to the Kurt Busiek Aquaman as a younger Aquaman, being a relatively new member of the Justice League, could be interesting. But either version of Aquaman would have his loose groups of allies known as the Others around. Though, not sure what, what, if anything, to do with them, as I got plenty of other characters around in the series. Boy, I'll say. Another interesting character to, to include in this would be Roy Raymond Jr. Clark admiring the man's father, Roy Raymond Sr., the t uh, TV detective, who pretty much solved crimes in front of the camera instead of dramatizing them, would be interesting, and to feel daytime TV is a waste of the detective ability of... The detective ability of Roy Jr.'s abilities. Not sure how I'd include him uh, being. Not sure how I'd include him being Owlman, as he was in Peter Tomasi's Outsiders run, or if it'd really be necessary. To be honest, 
and of course have cer uh, a certain Ronnie Raymond be Roy Raymond Jr.'s cousin. I think Kyle uh, needs to be in the show because he did appear in, in Superman the Animated Series, but there was a lot of Hal Jordan in there given he was unusable in the show. And even disregarding that he was in one episode and some more or less cameo appearances in JLU. Kyle Rayner is a bit more of a space hero for this series. Simon Baz covers being with the Justice League and the more Earthbound threats. Kyle also will be able to use any of the various emotion-powered rings, as I figured that would help him stand out even more. And as a nod to his brief time as a Titan in that, it, in that very odd early 90s era of Marv Wolfman's run, he would be the one to, one to rescue the four characters that would become the core of the new, team, uh, of the new Titans team from the hidden uh, Scion spaceship in, in orbit of Titan. Slightly related is Donna Troy, as I'd want her to be in a relationship with Kyle if she's not tied up in, leg in legalities. And to the surprise of many, I'm sure I would be for her to be a dark star like she was when she met Kyle. <clears throat> She'd still have her powers, as there is no way in hell I'm including the, the Team Titans background and such in the series, as that would require fitting in the courtship and marriage of Donna Troy and Terry Long into a five-year timeline and, and more, and have joined the Dark Stars to spread the Amazon's mes message across space. And to get out of her sister's shadow. Now, excuse me while I get a drink off my uh, sun-kissed here, because, dude, you've typed up a novel. The only other Green Lantern, well... F-Sharp Belcore member to show up in the cartoon would be Rotlop Fan, as his not having sight and having musical or sound-based constructs would be interesting. Plus, he'd be used for the major space stories, such as having the battle with Starbreaker. With Donna Troy having moved on from being Wonder Girl and is now a Dark Star, Cassie Sandmark wearing this, uh, the silent armor has been given that name. Much to her displeasure, as she doesn't like that title, nor does she really believe in time travel. She clearly hasn't met Booster Go Gold, or various Legion of Superheroes members, or Impulse, or any of the time traveler uh, supervillains. Wonder Woman also is after her, as she's not keen on a thief having a name linked to her. Still, Kara and Cassie have a team-up adventure, and they actually get along pretty well. Though, given this Wonder Girl is a thief, Superman and Wonder Woman really don't want Kara hanging out with her ever again. Speaking of the Legion of Superheroes, yes, they do exist in the DC Universe, and yeah, Clark worked with them to learn how to be a superhero. Which is why Superman's shocked when he encounters Faze and Valor of the Legion, which is L period, E period, G period, I period, O period, N period in his time. <clears throat> Faze, he's not sure if uh, she's a time-lost phantom girl slash apparition, or a cousin, or a piece of her somehow, and what means what exactly. Valor, he knew in the future as Monel. This time, <clears throat> excuse me, this time travel aspect also leaves Clark confused on what to do when he encounters Pharaoh in the present day. Yeah, going with the reboot take on Pharaoh and his brother Ingot being from the present day. Superman isn't sure what he should do to help Pharaoh and to free his brother or not. 
Does he mess with uh, what he remembers of the future, or doesn't he? Does he help uh, someone that's in trouble or not knowing what the you know what will happen to them? I think that'd be an interesting question to bring up. Another character who has to be used is Dial H for Hero, or at least the device of the dial, as I got no idea what characters that had used that had used the device to have show up. <clears throat> Animal Man is one of the older heroes, as he's been around since before Superman first appeared, and the Justice League formed. He's got a wife, kids, and not really hiding what he is. Not sure what he'd be doing beyond helping Superman or the other heroes in San Francisco. One more oddball character that I'd have the Man of Steel team up with is Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. He's a character I've enjoyed reading about, and he'd be able to open up some crazy adventures given the stuff he went through in his series. And open up things so Superman could encounter the Justice League Dark Team. Now, for Adam, i.e. Frankenstein's monster, his sword and gun would be downplayed with him using some shade tech devices he would uh, have available to him. And given the mandate of shade is the... Uh, be so far outside the box, they're likely in orbit uh, uh, on another planet, will make it pretty much anything goes for Adam's gadgets that he might have. He might have even crazier stuff than Batman. And speaking of shade, Father Time has to show up in his Japanese schoolgirl wearing a outfit wearing a domino mask face, as that would be outlandishly amusing. The atomic hero I'd explore, uh, to I'm sure the surprise of everyone, would be Breach. Again, following the M.O. of Batman, the Brave and the Bold, and giving the guy some time in the spotlight, and also having a team-up with Batman and Superman as Talia al Ghul plays a part with the Breach's enemies. Plus, it'd be funny for Batman to wonder why they'd trust her at all. In all honesty, she'd be one of the major elements that would end the threat of the, uh, of the Rifters. However, Breach is merely the prototype, in a sense... <laughs> for the Firestorm Protocols. Yes, many nations of the world will have atomic-powered super beings. Or, it seems like you can go to a supermarket and become a, a, super, a, a super being in the case of the nuclear men and women. Various powers desire them and will stoop to anything to get them, even if it means killing Superman and members of the Justice League for getting in their way. I'm not sure if Jason and Ronnie will stay solo heroes or have to merge at the start, or just eventually. Or if they have the cool Future's End Firestorm look. The power company I'm not sure I'd do much with, but I'd at least have them available for use if needed as heroes for hire, and probably more uh, background characters than being on major adventures. That isn't me having anything against that team, as I found their adventures and the team to be fun and interesting. One very unexpected character I'd also have show up is the Silver Age Superwoman. Because if the, quote, not bound to Lois Lane for a romantic lead, unquote, like the D, uh, angle like the uh, DC New has, in effect, might as well have some fun with Superman's romantic life a bit. And likely involve her and Superman meeting, uh, meeting and fighting Starbreaker with the League and Guardians of the Universe and a boatload of other cosmic heroes in the background. Plus, Superman finding out what gives him his strength would kill her. And Maxima hates Superwoman's guts and wants to kick her ass. 
Dr. Shea Veritas would be a supporting character as a super science person for the heroes to turn to if they need it. Especially after one of the other science guys turns out to be Jack Soar. The Flash for this universe is Wally West as Barry Allen is the star of the Flash TV show. However, Barry Allen will have just died in the DC Presents series, and so it's using the five-year timeline for the current grandson of heroes, so Barry still had five years as the fastest man alive. The Wally West Flash has no secret identity, and it can be explored exactly what that means to the Scarlet uh, Speedster. Then again, the only underused Flash at this point is Bart Allen, and I'd rather use him as Impulse anyway. Another unexpected character I'd want to use in, the, in uh, DC Presents is Tim Hunter, who, given he's been in the Justice League Dark uh, comic, definitely is in the DC proper. And again, not sure why he ever was when uh, he'd met Zatanna. Seriously, she served as a chairwoman of the Justice League, so any of the claims of editorial that Tim Hunter was not a part of DC are utter madness in the face of that. In any case, this character needs to be seen in some animated series and get some respect. For the Justice League, it'd, uh, it'd have an interesting version to get several members. And that would be John's Justice League of America as Simon Baz GL, the DC new version of Vibe, and Katana along with ma the mainstays like the Trinity, Martian Manhunter, Flash, and Aquaman. Cyborg is... Look, I think Victor Stone is an awesome character, but to me, he's first and foremost a titan. If I'd have him be part of the Justice League in any form, he'd be a new member and not a founder of the team. And again, if Wonder Woman can't be used, I'd go with Zatanna or Hot Girl to fill, uh, to fill in her slot on the team. Now, if Flash was unavailable due to his having his own TV show... I'd either have Firehawk or Bulleteer take his spot on the Justice League. And yes, they both have been members of a Justice League, admittedly. The one Firestorm threw together in the 52 series, but I've always felt like he, Firehawk, and Bulleteer were League material. Plus, even the DCAU Justice League series had one character who, whom no one expected to be there, so having one of, uh, one of these two... If the fastest man alive is unusable due to legalities, would still fit with what's gone before with the Justice League and cartoons, and now I'm getting another sip off my Sunkist. If Vibe can't be used due to being in Flash, I'd, I'd want Cyborg or Hardware to be used in his place. Hardware would be fun as I'd go for his fam for for his really dickish version uh, that he was, and of course add some tension to the team. Though Maya also is a choice. She was a member in the Hal Jordan run Justice League Europe team that had Hal Jordan GL, Wally West Flash, Metamorpho, Power Girl, Aquaman, and Elongated Man amongst its members. So not exactly the worst version of the Justice League around, and no, it wasn't. Very surprised the Indian, as in from India, member of the Justice League, wasn't a background character in Justice League Unlimited. I mean, Firestorm was barely in the show, so not expecting a minor member of the Justice League to, uh, to get much. The Justice League Dark team would uh, be basically the defenders of the DC Presents verse, with Johnny Constantine, unless his show keeps him from being used in the cartoons, 
Dead Man, Frankenstein's Monster, Madame Xanadu, Andrew Bennett, Zatanna, if she isn't part of the regular team, and Swamp Thing as the team. They would be the team dealing with the mystical and more threats to the universe. In an interesting twist, uh, when they would battle Kane, who is the first vampire, or where vampirism came from, it would take Superman and Batman to beat him, as he would be sucking in magic. <clears throat> he would be sucking in magic, uh, like he was, uh, like like it was a hot day on a luxury cruise, and he could get all the non-alcoholic drinks he wanted for free. If Constantine is unusable due to his show, then his replacement would be Hawkman using nth metal weapons. Nth metal definitely being like it has enough, uh, it has been in the various uh, other DC cartoons and very effective against magic. Oh, and the gravity pistol that could blow a hole through a building at the highest setting. That weapon is from the post-invasion Hawkworld Katar Hole. He might be able to use the power, the full power of that weapon once a day, or every few days, but I'm sure it'd give a lot of, even supernatural beings, a wound they'd notice. Or possibly Etrigan, the demon, as he'd uh, also be a lot of fun. Also, if Zatanna is on the show, on the regular Justice League, then her replacement for Justice League Dark is two characters. Hawk and Dove, to be exact. And play with the relationship between Dove and Deadman uh, dating, and Hawk is not very happy about that at all. The Doom Patrol would be the DC new, Vern of, uh, DC new version of Scorch, Nudge, Negative Woman, Tempest, and uh, Celsius as the original Doom Patrol has been getting some respect in the various DC cartoons and in their own series in DC Nation shorts. And to add to the weirdness factor, I'd include the milestone character Zombie, spelled with an X, as he and the Doom Patrol... <coughs> at their most weird, go together like peanut butter and jelly. Another hero whom Superman would team up with is Gangbuster. Admittedly, he's a street-level hero, but seriously, the, guy has, uh, the, the guy's been in utterly no DC cartoons to date. Him teaming up with Steel to, uh, to deal with uh, crime while Superman is busy with the big stuff would be a fun story. Starman's another character who needs some attention. However, the, ver the version in question is one that hasn't appeared in any animated series. Well, it gets complicated going by how the Will Payton Starman was retconned into being the Prince Gavin Starman minus the memories. But even including that Prince Gavin was only a background character in Justice League Unlimited? So, that doesn't really matter. And this Starman would be in his second costume as the first one is yellow and purple. Plus, I think this version of Starman is the one uh, is the one meet and team up with Superman the most. I'm not sure what you're trying to say there. Then again, he was also created and written by someone who, at the time, was one of Superman's title writers. So that's to be expected. For something a bit different, I'd go with Stormwatch PhD, which stands for Post Human Division, being set up so there could be uh, police teams able to handle metahumans in various cities across the U.S and to be able to do so on a budget. And by that I mean, without needing expensive powered armor, experimental drugs, or cybernetic implants. I think that concept would be interesting and need a lot less cleanup for a cartoon show than a lot of Wildstorm properties and characters. Plus, parody the Law & Order visual cues a bit for an episode about them and their perspective on superheroes and supervillains. 
That really doesn't fly over kids' heads as USA, the channel, has shown Law & Order series when children could watch them. I have no idea why they'd play Law & Order Special Victims Unit at 8 in the morning, but it has happened. Oh, and slight bit of trivia on that, that the writer of Stormwatch PhD, well, the first 12 issues before Wildstorm threw the toys against the wall for World's End, did write two episodes of one of the Law & Order series, and I have to say I did not know that. As for the actual Stormwatch Prime, they'd also be pulled from the era of Stormwatch PS, uh, PhD as a U.S.-funded team with a high-tech skyscraper as their home base. Yeah, basically the version of the team that was uh, played like it had an ongoing series tying in with the PhD book, but it didn't. And it doesn't involve characters getting their ear bitten off like Stormwatch, Team Achilles did, or some of the other conspiracy crap that's come up for the series. Justice League Unlimited covered that extremely well with Cadmus, and it amuses me that the status uh, to, and it amuses me to use the status quo for the Stormwatch Prime team from when I first read Wildstorm comics. Plus, be able to set up some tension between Superman and, of course, the Justice League with the official U.S. government team, Stormwatch. I mean. It makes more sense than the U.S. government if, if they don't trust the Justice League to, add a, to just add Of America to their own super team. Justice League International and the DC New had Batman's support. The Justice League of America that, really, that was really just a miniseries had no such support and backing by any members of the Justice League. So the use of that name really doesn't make sense. Unless purposely annoying the Justice League was their plan from the start. Stormwatch Prime definitely will have... Good God, how long is this email? Wow, dude, this is one hell of a long... I mean, I knew this was a long email, but damn, this is a long fucking email. So, um, no offense, dude, I think I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of clip this thing down to the end because I mean you've really kind of overloaded me here on on content so if you would just forgive me here let's see wow the message even got clipped inside of gmail that's how long this thing is wow all right so let's see as for the maximums uh, would be after the world's finest would set up in an earlier episode where Booster Gold and Rip Hunter have to deal with a legion of supervillains having altered time and raised Superman and Batman. The great hero the world doesn't know has to set things right with the help of Ted Cord, Blue Beetle, yet still something happened to Skyscraper before reality was set right. It'll be vague on what happened to him, but it wasn't as pleasant as the Maximums, uh, but it wasn't pleasant as the Maximums are out for blood and only Doomsday smacking them around as well, gets them to even consider working with the League. To which, that, dude, I gotta say, I don't know about the idea of having the Maximums in any type of series, because I don't know that... See, I don't want to sound like I'm a lawyer here or anything, but I always thought that basically they were too close to a certain Marvel property that shall not be named. That, you know, it's one thing to, to make a comic book out of that, but trying to pull that same shit off in, in an animated show might well get you, get, get you sued. I don't know. Anyway, get back into Prime's email, though. He writes, 
I'd go with the five-year timeline for this cartoon, as it would be five years since Superman or the Justice League had hit the scene and made superheroes a major thing, as the Justice uh, Society and Marvel family had long since vanished or came apart. The All-Star Squadron and Young All-Stars, the Justice Experience, Echoes of Justice, Infinity, Inc., and such, would have come and gone before the world's greatest heroes made an impact which still bends that far less than DC's been doing. And if Green Arrow's not being mentioned at all is strange, well, there is a method to my madness on that. Oliver Queen has been in Smallville, Batman, The Brave and the Bold, and now has his own show. He's covered extremely well for being in the public consciousness. There's a l- there are a lot of other characters in need of being shown to the public more than Green Arrow. He's doing fine. You might wonder why I never really talked uh, too much about Superman directly in this. Well, that's simple. Because Superman is his core character. He's a man trying to do the best he can with the talents he has. He works with those to help that... uh, He works to help those that uh, need it in the various ways he has to do so. He sets an example for what a hero is and is willing to give people a chance. Abusing that... Superman is wi- sorry. Abusing that Superman is willing to give you a chance, however, is a horrible idea. He is Kal-El, Clark Kent, Superman, and possibly more. He fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and yes, the American way. There are those that fear him, or are jealous of him, or wish to bend him in their image. He has many friends in his own time and in the distant future. He's inspired those in the future to work for an even better tomorrow. So really, what else do I have to say on that? And yeah, uh, dude, I gotta tell you, this was one hell of a long email, and I'm really sorry I didn't read all of it. But I mean, dude, to be fair, you really did kind of load me up on a lot of different stuff here. But what I will say though is that if you were to ever get a chance to make this fucking cartoon, dude, let me know. I want to watch it. Uh, this is a uh, this is a pretty interesting little show that you've that you've uh, uh, cooked up here. And I think this would be a, uh, a lot of fun. So, anyway. Um, people, the way that it is right now, I've got, it looks like at least, possibly, I don't know, this looks like maybe 15 or so, 15 or 20 emails, in the, which is to say feedback that I need to go through. But obviously, I'm not going to have time for it in this episode. So, uh, but just, you know, keep your ears peeled because eventually all feedback is going to get read. So, uh, or mostly read in uh, Prime's case. And Prime, I, I really hope you're not pissed off about that. I really hope you don't take offense to it. But it's just, you know, I'd only made it through about halfway through that email and we were already at the 40-minute mark and I just, I got to close it down at some point, you know. So anyway, hopefully no hard feelings there. So uh, now as for me, uh, basically, uh, that's, I think that's pretty much everything for for everything that I at least have time to talk about this time. So For next week, I'm going to be talking about a shitload of Spider-Man comics. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. But for right now, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at Two True Freaks dot com which is spelled t-w-o-t-r-u-e-f-r-e-a-k-s you can also find it on facebook just by searching for 
Trentus Magnus punches reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.